0: Well, good morning again, Rock Hill, if you have your Bibles, we do, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew 16 is where we'll be again, we're walking verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew and we've come to a place uh, where we've done just kind of a mini-series called Grace-Filled Church and uh, we're so glad uh, that you can have your Bibles and you can open them up. Now when I was uh, in college, uh, between my sophomore and junior year, I was selected to preach revivals throughout texas it was a group of us that were part of this group that was going around and doing revivals and And I was the the primary preacher, teacher of that. And and to be very honest with you, uh, I had never really preached uh, two sermons in a row, uh, much less uh, one sermon very well. And and it was just a learning process where we went to more smaller churches throughout the the region of Texas. Some were centralized, like in the Beaumont area, kind of orange. And then some were in West Texas, some were in East Texas. And and we were the group that went to all the fill-in spots that didn't have kind of a region. And so we traveled thousands of miles that summer. And, and our, our leader instructor, he he knew that there'd come a place and a time where we would be a little, little dry. We'd be a little tired from all the travel and all the preaching. We'd never done this before. I mean, I remember preaching in Corsicana, Texas, which they really need Jesus. So I was preaching in Corsicana and, and getting done with the sermon and just saying, all right, thanks. And then like sitting down and not knowing what to, not, I had no idea, just, just very naive and Still am. And so there was this sense of a moment where we were in the middle of the summer, and we were tired, we were weary, we were worn out. And they provided some sermons, videos for us to watch if we were just feeling just down, just to kind of just have some, uh, an elder voice into our life. And so there's a particular sermon from a pastor, and, and uh, he's now since retired, and he was describing uh, your life, our life, if you will. And the, the aim of the message and the little tagline that he had throughout the message was, was don't waste your life, that you have one life to live and you don't have a do-over, if you will, at the end of your days to, to come back and reincarnate, that, that you ought to want your life to count for Christ. Now the axiom of life in general and really what he was getting at was you don't have to be a master of, of a ton of things to leave a lasting impact in this world you don't have to master a bunch of different things and be knowledgeable in all these different areas in order for your life to count for christ you just have to be mastered by the most important things and then live and be willing to die for those most important things you don't have to be mastered by You don't have to master a lot of different things. You just have to be mastered by the main thing. I realize when I talk about making your life count for Christ or for me wanting my life to count for Christ that there are some in this room right now who are not interested in their life counting for Christ. You just want to live a a good life and to have a good family and to have a good income and effort to have a good retirement. And and you just want your life just to kind of be a good life and then you just want to kind of ride off into the sunset but i need you to know that you can aim to have all those things and it actually would be a tragedy all those things you can have without christ you can have a good family and a good job and a good retirement and a riding off into the sunset you're going to have all those things without jesus and in our text today, we're going to see that a grace-filled church understands the call and the cost of following Jesus. A grace-filled church understands the call and the cost of following Jesus. So, If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 21. We're going to read all the way through 28. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have it on the screen. But if you're there, will you a word. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine Peter going to Jesus doing this? Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Then Jesus says to his disciples, if anybody or if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find For what will it benefit? What will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now Jesus begins this section in verses 21 through 23 and we won't spend a tremendous amount of time here but you've got Peter, Peter has just had the top 5 moment of his life. The question has been asked to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, well, "You are the son of the living God. You're the Messiah," is what he indicates to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, hey, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but the Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. And there's a sense where Jesus is commending Peter for his confession. And now we have just a few moments later so we can assume that Peter is sitting here and he's, Jesus has described to him and to all his disciples that they're going to take him and they're going to crucify and they're going to kill him and he's going to be buried and he's going to be raised and Peter with all the zeal in the world says, that will never happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him, and Peter's just had the top five moment, and now he has the lowest five moment of his life. Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, now why did Jesus say this to Peter? I mean, is he calling Peter Satan? And if you have a younger sibling, can I say that about my other, younger sibling, right? But That's not what is going on here. Here's what I think is happening The enemy is strategic. He knows the right time to bring somebody down. He knows the right time to do the most damage for the kingdom in the sense of bringing the witness of another down. And sometimes the enemy will use the best of men to do his evil work. And it will do far more corruption than the evil of evil men to do his work. Sometimes the enemy will use the best of men to accomplish his evil work, and it will do more damage than the most evil of men could ever possibly try to do on this earth. Is this not why we often will see pastors who have fallen from, as we say, fallen from grace, commit some moral sin, Why does that happen? It's often because the enemy knows exactly at the right time how to bring destruction to the kingdom of God. It's why we have to be vigilant in our days to be fending off these things. It's why the the first qualification for pastors uh, as men is to be above reproach. And so we have here where Jesus isn't necessarily calling Peter Satan. He's looking right right through Peter, and he sees Satan lurking behind him. And so it then leads into this moment where he explains the call of a disciple. He says it in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me. Now, some of your translations might say, come after me. (laughs) Come after me. Follow after me. Think two and a half years before this moment, Jesus has gone to the disciples and he's given that simple call. It's just two words, follow me. He's looking at them while many of them were even fishing and they, they are dropping their nets right when Jesus invites them to follow him and they drop what they're doing and they forsake their families and their welfare, their jobs, and they go and they follow Jesus. This is the beginning of the invitation. This is the beginning of salvation to say, I'm, I'm leaving everything, forsaking all these things to follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to be saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means that you come to an agreement about your status that God already knows about your status. That God sees you and he knows that you are a sinner. Now, what does it mean to be a sinner? It means somebody who has broken God's holy covenant, It's anything that we do that's actually contrary to the character and nature of God. God is perfect. God has never sinned. God is is, is glorious and holy. And when we sin, when we do what we want to do, when we want to do it, the Bible calls that sin. In fact, sin is even the things that we know that we should do, but we don't do it. The Bible will even call that sin, the sins of commission, things that we know we should not do, the sins of omission, things we know that we should do, but we fail to do them. Uh Uh-oh. The Bible will tell us that each one of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that means every person in this room, including me, have sinned before God. And what that sin does is not just a momentary lapse of judgment. It's not just a mistake, oh, I didn't mean to. No, 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 sin is so offensive to God that the Bible tells us that sin actually, the punishment for sin is death. That death means a separation from God. It means that you are, wake up, or you are born, and all of a sudden, when you're born, immediately, you're at war with God. But it's a sweet, innocent baby. No, there's no innocent about that. Just work in in the nursery, just for five minutes, when children are trying to learn how to potty train. The reality is, though, that sin that separates us you don't have to stay in that status. When you admit that you're a sinner, when you understand that only through Jesus you can be saved, that Jesus came on a rescue mission to save those who are lost, that Jesus then, he, by believing in Jesus for his what he has done, his work on the cross, then you can be saved when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so to follow after me is this invitation to salvation. You cannot do these next things that Jesus will describe, the call of a disciple, unless you have actually begun to follow jesus to follow jesus means that you've believed you've crossed over that line and trusted in christ as your lord the call of a disciple is to understand and the the reality is of a grace-filled church is a church that understands that it's grace alone through faith alone in christ alone for the glory of god alone the grace alone meaning that you're receiving something of which you did not deserve that's what grace is receiving something you did not deserve Grace is not given to you because of how good you are, your high IQ, your good looks, how deep, how deep your family is. <laughs> Grace is God's giving to you that which you did not deserve. That's grace. And then we understand that it's God's grace towards us that allows us to have the opportunity to place our faith in him. Faith is not you trying to do good or trying to do more good things than bad things. Faith is saying, I believe that the only way for me to be saved is what Christ has accomplished for me. That's why it's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, not in your effort alone. Not in your good works alone. Not in your church membership alone. Not in your ability to be consistent alone. In Christ alone. And then why, do we, why does all that happen? For the glory of God alone. So often when we hear testimonies, the testimony is about the person, not about Jesus. The testimony is what I, well, look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've chose to do. No, no. The testimony of every Christian is the same. We went from death to life. And the temptation for some of us in this room is to think, well, my testimony is not as good as that person's testimony. Friend, we, if we've trusted in Christ, we have the same testimony. Don't let the enemy diffuse the light that's in you, hiding hiding it under a bushel. We learn this. No, I'm going to let it shine. So to follow after me. But then he gives some instructions. Look what he says. He says, let him deny himself. The call of the disciple is to follow after Jesus, but part of that following him is to deny yourself. Now, we live in a culture that refuses and pushes against the denial of self. In fact, we're in a culture today where we indulge the self. We want to elevate the self. We want to write books that will help the self. Over and over and over, we're living in a country and a culture that, that just so longs to indulge, to appease. This is why fasting, and in the Bible, fasting is always situated around the, the denial of food. You could fast from TV or from sports, and that's fine. But biblically, biblical fasting is actually from food. But you deny yourself to remind you of your great need for him. And so to deny self is to deny your tendencies. We have a tendency towards selfishness. We have a tendency towards our sin. We have a tendency towards our comforts. We have a tendency towards indulging what we want to indulge in. And Jesus says, part of following me is to actually deny the self. And that's not a popular word for us today because we don't want to be told that we can't do something. We want the self to be able to have whatever it wants, when it wants, and however it comes. We want to not deny our This is why when Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 5, the, the spiritual ethics, right, the, the Christian ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, when he says poor in spirit, he's not describing financial poverty he's talking about a spiritual poverty you have to recognize if you want to be part of the kingdom of God you have to recognize your spiritual poverty apart from him that without Christ you do not have anything like when it comes to salvation I think we get into our mind look at all the stuff we're bringing to salvation look how impressive we are look how wonderful surely God would want us to be part of his family but in reality, we realize that, that if we think we're bringing something, all we're bringing is that if we're grabbing sand on the shore and we're clenching it tightly. And when we open our hand, there's no more sand left because we bring nothing to our salvation but our sin. So we have to deny ourselves. So he says, hey, you have to realize that life isn't about you. You have to realize that life doesn't center around you. And we know that this is a struggle because even in conversations where you've called to care and, and check on a friend, we'll even turn those rare, very well-intended conversations. We'll turn them onto a conversation about us. That's how narcissistic we are. We'll take family photos during this holiday season, and the only photo and the only person we're looking at is our ourself. Are my eyes open? Is my smile good and genuine? Is my shirt tucked in or untucked? caring nothing about others in that photo. He says we ought to deny ourselves. It's when you realize that you're poor apart from him that he then will give you much. But not only that, he says you gotta take up his cross. So to come to follow Jesus and the salvation, you gotta deny yourself, but you also have to take up your cross. Now, the cross, the cross is not your order getting wrong at Chick-fil-A. Well, that's the cross I gotta bear. A cross is not that nagging spouse in your home. Well, this is the cross I have. The cross that you bear is not your mother-in-law who may be domineering and more directive than inviting you to respond to what you're gonna do over the holidays. The cross is, the cross is not a difficult boss. See, the cross is a form of execution. Now, I know we hang crosses up in our home, or we wear them around our neck, or on our charm, or, or when we drive onto our property, we have a cross, and when we have one right above my head, I mean, we have this, these crosses that kind of bookend us into this, into this room. And it's easy to think that the cross is, is pretty and lovely and Look at all the flowers on the cross. But the reality is that the cross was a form of execution. So when you say take up his cross, it's saying you're realizing the great cost of which it is to follow Jesus. It's a form of dying. You say, but I want to live. The call of Christ is to take on the cross, to carry the cross, and I wish that it was just a momentary decision, but it's a daily decision. It's an every moment by moment decision to say, I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. I'm going to take up the cross, whatever it may be. It may mean suffering. It may mean switchback after switchback after switchback. It may mean suffering, but in all, he is worth it all take up the cross. A graceful church is full of people who are willing to suffer whatever it may be for the sake of following him. I've also learned that it's really hard for me to hold a grudge against somebody when I'm carrying my cross. It's hard for me to hold bitterness against somebody when I understand that I've got to deny myself and carry Then he also says this, you've got to follow me. Now you say, well, he already said follow me. Well, he said that, but this is initial, and this is the walk of obedience. If you abide in him and his words abide in you, right? Those that obey, according to Acts chapter 5, verse 32, tells us that those who obey, those those are the ones that are filled with the Holy Spirit. Follow him means we're going to obey him. This is why the Great Commission, to teach them to observe everything that I commanded you. And and listen, no church, no church in America or overseas has figured it all out and gets it all right all the time. We're trying to pursue the Lord as best as we can with what we know, to pursue him, and then to help you obey him and to follow him. This is the call of the disciple. This is the call. Submission to the Lord. A grace-filled church submits to the Lord in all things, which is why you need community. You need people in your life to, to help you stay true to God and his word. You, you need those that can help correct you when you need correction. Have you driven? This is what happens in my life. When I, when I drive my wife's car, I realize her blind spots very quickly. it's hard for me to see the blind spots in my own car because I, I know my car, I know those things. But when I drive her car, I begin to see the blind spots. You need those in your life who can point out your blind spots. The call of a disciple is to follow the Lord, but to deny yourself, take up his cross, and follow him. That's the call, but then there's a cost. Look at what happens in verse 25. Look what he says, He says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. He's setting the table here in this moment, this cost of a disciple to say, hey, whoever wants to to save his life will actually lose it. But those who lose his life because of me will find it. And so the way he prods here a little bit, look what he says in verse 26. This is the key for us today. What will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? And what will anyone give in exchange for his life? Jesus was a master communicator. There's, the preaching is understanding the text and then communicating the emotion of the text. That's what preaching is. It's understanding the text, but then communicating the emotion that's found within the text. There's all these other elements we can get into later, but the point is... Is that here Jesus is showing us the way that he is the master communicator. Jesus had a way to say something to somebody and it would click with them and to understand deep spiritual truths in a simple way. He does this all throughout. The kingdom of heaven is like a sower who went out into the field and sowed seeds. So all the farmers would go, Oh, yeah, I understand that. The kingdom of heaven. Is like a net that's been cast out into a sea, and then when they draw it close, he brings in his fish. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. A fisherman would understand that. The kingdom of heaven is like a great treasure that was found in a field, and the person sells all that they have so that they obtain the land, and with great joy, they buy that property. A real estate agent would understand that concept. When Jesus spoke and when Jesus taught, he was always teaching so that people could understand what he was saying. And here, Jesus asks a question that you and I must deal with or we'll miss out on the cost. We'll think that Christianity is something that it is absolutely not. And so what does Jesus do? He asks a question. Now you are familiar here, if you were looking at your text, the ESV, the NIV, the KJV, I think they all use the word soul here. What does it profit? What does it gain someone if he gains the whole world? yet loses his life or soul. Now, what, what does that mean? The word psyche is what this comes from, and, and, and so this word psyche means uh, if you could look at your funeral, not that I'm wanting you to plan your funeral, but if you looked at your funeral and you saw your physical body there, this soul or this life is what, is what you're able to look down on. So you're able to, to look on it because that's the soul, the real you, as some commentator said, the, the, the emotions and the ambitions and the dreams and the real self, like when everything gets quiet, the real you, not the you that you portray online or that you portray to other people, but the real you. And so Jesus asked this question, what does it profit you, what does it, what does it benefit you to, to gain everything in this world and yet forfeit that which matters the most, that which lasts forever? And so a Graceville church is full of people who understand the cost of following him, and the cost of following him is significant. Jesus is pointing out here what happens to a person when they choose to try to gain in this world, because we think in this world and this world alone. They'll actually forfeit their souls, what he says in verse 25 so when I begin to think about this, this gaining, what, what are the things that we end up doing that cause us to not ask this question for our own soul? So I thought about just three different categories. One of the reasons why we don't ask this question, what will it benefit, is because of work. Now I, I, I think that working is good. I enjoy the work that I get to do. I hope that you enjoy the work that you have. But there's a great temptation in our day and it's to become a workaholic where we so give our attention and time to our work because the more we work, the more potential income we have and the more income we have, the more happier we will be. So we believe. And so we give ourselves to our work and all of our work does is it distracts us from the things that matter the most. We give ourselves to our time, our time and our energies, and when we come home, we are so emotionally bankrupt because we have given it all to our work that our children or our family, our spouse, if you're empty nester, or, or whoever it may be, has, you have nothing left for them because you spent it all at work. And the enemy uses work, which we are to work, but the enemy uses work to distract you from thinking about the things that matter the most. I think about Family. I love my family, I love my wife, I love my kids, I tolerate my dog, I love my family. And I want you to love your family. But did you know that if you make your aim in life your family, you actually might be robbing from God? That family can become an idol in your life? Well, I, I can't. I can't do that. I can't. Att- we, man, we're just focused on our family. Look, I, I think you change the world by changing families. I think you change the world by changing diapers. You change the world by having a meal together. I think that's how you change the world. But I, I'm telling you, there's so many of us that have bought into the idea family first. And I'm just trying to care for my family and make my family the priority. That you could actually gain your family but lose your soul. I thought you wanted to have a family that's centered on Christ. I do want that. And I think the best thing you could do as a parent is to actually sit at dinner with the TV off and sit and have a conversation with your family. I think that's the best thing, best thing you can do. But so many of us have chosen our family over the things of the Lord because well, we just want it's a family night. And I, I'm for family nights. I'm for that. But so many of us have bought into the idea that the family supersedes even the ministry of God's word. One more category. I think extracurricular activities distract us from asking this question. What does it benefit a man for your kids to succeed in every athletic, every dance, every extra thing, but in the end, they lose their soul? Look, I'm for my kids succeeding. I want your kids to succeed. I want them to Just be thrilled with all those things. What will it benefit someone if he gains all the acclaim and extracurricular activities but loses his soul? What will it gain? All those things do is they just distract us from the main thing. You don't have to be mastered of a ton of things. You just have to be mastered by the main thing. What will it profit anyone? What will it gain somebody? What's the benefit to have all these accolades, but in the end, your heart is far from God? What does it gain your family to have all these accolades and all these these propping ups of, oh, that's a good moral family, and yet your soul, your life has not been given over to, to him? You claim to follow him, but you've not denied yourself. You claim to follow him, but you're not taking up your cross. You claim to follow him, but you're not actually obeying him. What does it profit? What does it gain? What does it benefit? And the enemy loves to take these. These are not wicked things. Work is not wicked. I know you might think it's wicked. It's not wicked. Family's not wicked. You say, well, you haven't met my uncle. Family's not wicked. Extracurricular activities, they're not wicked. But the enemy will use those in your life to make those the priority above Christ. And when Jesus says, if anybody wants to follow after me, he must deny himself. That means not that you're getting rid of your identity. It means that you're finding your identity in him. It's not that you're saying, I, I, I don't have an existence anymore. It's saying that I'm living my life for him, taking up your cross. You understand that there's going to be suffering and there's gonna be hardship in this life. Because why are you at church anyway? Are you at church because you think that by coming to church, you'll have a good family, you'll have a good income, you'll have a good retirement, and you can ride off into the sunset? Is that why you come? That if I, if I just come enough, that maybe Jesus will give me some of his prosperity? He tells us in verse 25, you'll lose your life. But anybody who loses their life for my sake, they'll find life. And so then he asks this question, what will anyone give in exchange for his life? He's saying there's not enough money in the world that you could give to earn life. But Jesus tells us the value of a life, doesn't he? Jesus tells us he displays the value of a life, doesn't he? I mean, Jesus was sent on a rescue mission from heaven. We know this because he said, I have come to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus says in Mark, he says, I've come that my life might be a ransom for many. Jesus says, even that I've come not just to, to give you life, but life more abundantly. Jesus says, I've come not because, not for those that are well, but for those that are sick. That's why I have come. And so Jesus, Jesus comes, and he tells even the disciples in verses 21 through 23 that there's gonna come a point where he's going to give his life for them. Jesus has told us the value of a soul. Jesus has told told us the value of a life. The value of a life is a life. There's no dollar figure on it, but Jesus displays to us how valuable you are to him. Jesus comes on a rescue mission. He comes to this earth and he lives a perfect life that we could not live and have not lived. He dies the death you and I deserve. That's how valuable you are to him. And it's on that cross that Jesus cries out, it is finished. What is finished? Jesus is saying all the wrath of all the sin, all the past sin, all the present sin, and all the future sin, all in that moment was poured out on Jesus. It was excruciating. But on that cross, he cries out, it is finished, identifying and saying that all of the sin has been now satisfied so that you could be forgiven. And then on the cross, he even cries out, Why did you forsake me? Because he's, he's experiencing that moment where we are experiencing just here on this earth, that we've been separated from God, and now he's experiencing this, this brokenness of the relationship, and Jesus hung there on the cross. He didn't tap out and say, I was just kidding. I'm sorry, I'm gonna come down now. It was just a joke. I mean, I can, I can, I can like, David blame this moment and get out of this situation. He stays on the cross. He dies a martyr's death. He dies a sinner's death in your place. And the Bible tells us, Paul tells us, he who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. And in that moment, he exchanges his life for your death. He dies what you deserved. He then was buried in a tomb, rose from the grave so that you could now have life. And we are so tempted to be distracted with work and with family and with extracurricular activities thinking we're gaining something, but in the end, he says, you will lose it all. So I remember as that sophomore going into my junior year, sitting there in that little bitty country church saying, I want my life to count for Christ. I don't want to waste a moment. So I just held out, Lord, you got a blank check. You fill in whatever you want. I will go wherever you tell me to go and I will do whatever you've called me to do and it's taken us to some places. But not once as I've journaled say, it's not been worth it. Every moment along the way, we've been able to say, This is worth it because He's worth everything. I recognize that there's some of you in this room, you you don't care about making a lasting difference in this world. You just want to move on to the next thing. And I know some are looking for a church and they're just looking for their felt needs to be met. Jesus doesn't meet your felt needs. Jesus meets your needs. Whether you feel them or not. Why are you here? A grace-filled church understands the call of Christ and the cost of what it means to be a disciple. Are you willing to follow him? Let's pray. Father, we, we come, and Lord, we know the value of a life because you, you gave your life for us. And now, Lord, as we ruminate on this truth, Lord, you would help us to answer the question, what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world but forfeit or lose his life? And so, Lord, now as we respond, Lord, would you lead us by your Spirit? Father, if there's somebody in this room right now that's not trusted in you as Lord, that they would right now in the quickening of the Holy Spirit come under conviction and they would respond to your beautiful and extravagant grace. And the Lord, it's not about they've got to get things figured out and fixed in order for them to come to faith, that you, you invite them right now as they are, but you love them enough not to keep them there. So, Lord, would they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus, you are the Lord, and they would respond to you today. But, Lord, for each one of us, maybe we've allowed some of these things to creep in to distract us from the main thing. Lord, would we confess that as well? Repent of that sin. Continue to follow you. To deny self, take up the cross, and follow you. Lord, to help us in Jesus' name we pray, amen.